0: Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and I think we may have finally come upon an episode with no prestigious writer or actor or history lesson that requires a long introduction. We don't even have a connection to a Hitchcock movie. Okay, we have one connection. Maybe two connections. Okay, maybe three or four, but we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. We don't have to say much about the director or the teleplay writer because we've seen them both before, although I would like to add a little tidbit that comes from Jack Seabrook at Barebones Bones zine about our director, Robert Stevenson. He notes that Stevenson later told interviewer Patrick McGilligan that his television work in the 50s led him to be noticed by Disney and he went on to direct Disney's best live-action films. This is Robert Stevenson's third episode after Don't Come Back Alive, and The Long Shot. Our teleplay writer, Robert C. Dennis, has had four previous episodes. Also, Don't Come Back Alive, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, and The Older Sister. Robert Stevenson's next episode is the next episode, and so died Ria Bushinska. Robert C. Dennis's next teleplay is episode number 22, Place of Shadows. We also have an actor that we've seen before, Philip Reed, who plays Ralph here, was last in episode 14, A Bullet for Baldwin, as Mr. King. He is in two more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next is Sylvia, episode 16 of season 3. We don't even have a short story we can compare to the episode, even though the credits list the story as by Terence Maples. To quote Jack Seabrook, As far as I can tell, this was an unpublished story, since no reference work in print or online lists a single published story by Maples, who is something of a mystery man. He has 22 credits in IMDb, all for episodes of various television series from 1953 to 1969. This is his only credit for the Hitchcock series, and none of the other credits include a situation where he wrote a story but did not write the teleplay as well. The only other credit I could find from Maples is for a 1959 radio adaptation of a teleplay he had written for Have Gun, Will Travel in 1958. Maples lived from 1915 to 1980, according to the Social Security Death Index. I was not even able to find an obituary online or in reference books. That leaves us with only four actors to look at, and an episode, of course. So with that, let's get right to Hitch. In fact, let's get right back to the end of the opening credits because even as the music still plays, the camera pans over from the opening silhouette to find another Hitchcock silhouette, this one wearing a top hat, and of course right next to it is Hitch himself in profile wearing that top hat, plus tails, a vest, a striped tie, and a handkerchief in his jacket pocket. He is also carrying, rather incongruously, considering his attire, a lunch pail. He welcomes us. Oh, good evening. He moves to a desk where he sets down his lunch pail. He also takes off his top hat and puts it head side up as a magician would.
1: I hope we don't mind, but I have to eat on the job tonight.
0: As he talks, he takes a cloth napkin out of the hat and spreads it on the table. He then takes out a cup and saucer, a knife and fork, setting his place on the napkin. Finally, he takes out salt and
1: pepper shakers. We're terribly rushed, but no matter how busy, I think the least one can do is to dress properly. Tonight's supper show is called The Derelicts, and there is isn't much to tell you about it. Naturally, we shall... uh, Populate our stage with a few delinquents.
0: Ah! He opens his lunch pail, pulls out a sandwich wrapped in wax paper, which he opens, then opens his mouth to eat, but first looks between the bread.
1: Rabbit. I could have pulled that out of the hat.
0: As usual, my DVD set ends the intro prematurely. Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom in The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion finish it up for us. When I was a young man, I had an uncle who frequently took me out to dinner. He always accompanied these dinners with minutely detailed stories about himself. But I listened because he was paying for the dinner. I don't know why I'm reminded of this, but we are about to have one of our commercials. Through a brilliant piece of strategy, it immediately precedes the piece de resistance. So here's The Derelicts, first broadcast on February 5th, 1956, starring Robert Newton, teleplay by Robert C. Dennis, based on a story by Terence Maples, and directed by Robert Stevenson. While we're still in the darkness of the fade from Hitchcock to the episode, a doorbell rings. When the lights come up, we're not at the door. We're in another room with our old friend Philip Reed. And he, as I mentioned before, is playing Ralph. Like Hitch, he's all dressed up for dinner, only he has a bow tie to go with his tuxedo. He's looking in a mirror admiring himself. We're going to see a number of scenes of people admiring themselves in mirrors, but not as often as we're going to hear doors slamming. From off screen we hear a woman's voice.
2: I'll get it, darling. Thank you.
0: Ralph is still looking in the mirror, putting a handkerchief in his jacket pocket and a carnation in his lapel, but he does wonder who's at the door. The woman tells him it was a delivery boy, and when Ralph steps out into the other room, he finds her putting on a black minx doll.
3: Good heavens, Herder,
2: that must have cost a $1,000. Uh, 1765 sixty-five. Seventeen hundred and 1765 Plus tax. State, federal, luxury, and a sale. Have you gone out of your mind?
3: I told you before you're spending money faster than I can make it.
2: Well, then make more. Sell more gadgets or raise the price or something. But I'm squeezing every dime out of it now. Well, you certainly seem to have plenty to spend when I met you. Now, all of a sudden, we have to economize.
3: Look, honey, you know you can have anything you need. But you got a stole just a couple of months ago. If
2: you think that I would set foot in the 300 Club and those ratty old f- All right,
3: then we won't go. We'll stay home. Call the Gravenhurst and tell them we can't make it.
2: Look, Ralph, I can make it. But if you're going to be such an old grouch, you'd better stay home. Now, look, I... Ralph, I warned you I was expensive. If you can't afford me on your income, do something about it. Oh, honey, don't talk like that. Don't I buy you everything you want? Why, sure, Ralph. You just bought me a black mist
0: stole. There's a lot going on in that little scene, besides her slurring of the word mink and the decision not to do a retake of it. First of all, we find out that Ralph's wife's name is Herta, and I suspect the emphasis in Ralph's case is on the hurt. Herta is completely uncaring about money. She clearly married Ralph for his money and intends to milk him as much as she can, and she doesn't care if he knows it. Herta is also very high on herself, because while she's wearing that minx stole, we have our second mirror scene, where she goes over to the mirror to admire herself, and we see Ralph over her shoulder, also in the mirror. What's interesting about this moment is that they are continuing their argument, so Herta never actually looks at herself in the mirror. She looks up at Ralph through the mirror, and Ralph looks at her also through the mirror. Ralph also hugs her a bit, So it's like this giant cameo brooch on the wall, but there's nothing loving about it. Now we learn a couple of important things here. First of all, we learn from Herta's line,
2: Sell more gadgets or raise the price or something,
0: that Ralph has some kind of business where he sells some sort of gadget. Clearly, Herta doesn't particularly care what it is. We also learn, as if we needed to be told,
2: Ralph, I warned you I was expensive. If you can't afford me on your income, do something about it.
0: And the look on Ralph's face in a close-up after Hertha leaves shows how torn he is about it. How much his love for her is tearing him apart. So just like that, we know exactly what Ralph's problem is and we know it's going to cost him. Because right then and there, immediately after the door slams, the telephone rings. By the way, I don't know what the 300 Club is. To which Herta is going... If
2: you think that I would set foot in the 300 Club on those ratty old...
0: But I suspect it is not this from Wikipedia. The 300 Club is the name given to those who have endured a range of temperature of 300 degrees Fahrenheit within a very short time. The practice originated at amundsen Scott's South Pole Station in Antarctica. Participants in the 300 Club wait for a day when the temperature drops to minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit for more than a few minutes, generally in the winter. Those taking part first warm up in a sauna heated to 200 degrees Fahrenheit for as long as 10 minutes. Then they run naked in the snow to the geographic South Pole, running around it in the minus 100 degree Fahrenheit weather. After this, they usually warm themselves back in the sauna again, often with the aid of alcoholic beverages. The 300 Club in the episode is probably more like the speakeasy that existed in the 1920s, opened by Texas Guinan. But that closed in 1929. Now, before we get to that telephone call, let's look at Peggy Knudsen, who plays Herta. I don't usually quote the IMDb bio in full, but in this case, how can I resist? A knockout, curvaceous screen siren with a smart, confident air, Peggy Knudsen had the blonde pulchritude and the presence to make it in Hollywood. Somehow, stardom eluded her. The daughter of a Duluth, Minnesota fire chief, she had studied violin as a child and later showed some promise acting in school plays. Her mother consequently moved the family to Chicago, where Peggy got her start on the CBS daytime radio drama The Woman in White. Age 19, she then made her way to Broadway to debut in a small part in My Sister Eileen as replacement for Joanne Sayers. Movies eventually beckoned, and in 1945, Peggy was signed by Warner Brothers after being spotted at the stage door canteen. The studio publicity machine promptly heralded her arrival by nicknaming her, The Lure. Peggy's first significant role, though small, was the integral part of tough girl Mona Mars in the film noir classic, The Big Sleep, for which she received good critical notices.
2: Daddy's not that kind.
4: The United Morris never kills anybody. No. <laughs> you really believe that, don't
2: you? Yes, I do.
3: How do you suppose I found out you were here? I
2: don't know. How did you?
3: Well, a little man named Harry Jones told me. A funny little guy, harmless. I liked him. He came to sell me the information because he found out I was working for General Sternwood. How he found out's a long story.
1: Anyway, Canino, your husband's hired man, got to him first while I stood around like a sap. I was in the next room. Now that little man is dead,
3: but Eddie Mars didn't do that. You're lying. Oh no, Eddie Mars never kills anybody. He just hires it done. I don't believe you. Me. Think he's just a gambler, don't you? Well, I think he's a blackmailer, a hot car broker, a killer talking. by a remote control. He's anything that looks good to him. Anything with money pinned to it. Anything rotten.
0: He. She was then cast in support of Errol Flynn in Never Say Goodbye, and John Garfield in Humoresque.
1: A depression is a depression for us as well as for everybody else.
2: What depression? With two chickens in every pot?
1: It's no joke, Flossie. It's no joke at all.
2: Whoever said it was funny. I got a run in my stocking. Will you fix it? It's the last decent pair I've got.
3: Phil, is that you? Yeah. They got new signs in the park now. Instead of saying, please keep off the grass, they say, please don't eat the grass.
5: Any luck? There's nothing, Mom. Not one job between a battery and a palisade. It's like banging your head against a stone wall. Did you eat anything? No, I'm not hungry. What are you doing home so early? You didn't get canned, did you? Maybe I could go down and
2: get your job. Oh, you're welcome to it. They got a bright new idea. I gotta go back to work tonight. Open evenings for the rest of the summer, three times a week. Customer is always right.
0: Despite these A-grade films, her subsequent career turned out to be somewhat desultory. Warners had a not undeserved reputation for often failing to effectively cast, rather than typecast, their starlets. With Peggy... They missed the boat altogether. In the absence of suitable vehicles, she was first relegated to playing one-dimensional hard-boiled tufts, or the proverbial other woman, then loaned out. With Saul M. Wurzel's B-Unit at 20th Century Fox and subsequently at Monogram, she fared rather better, finally getting to play leads. However, her films, Roses are Red, Trouble Preferred, Perilous Waters, and Half Past Midnight, were little seen low budget affairs. Unsurprisingly, Peggy turned towards television becoming a prolific guest star on such primetime shows as The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet.
2: Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Nelson. I'm your neighbor. I live just down the street. Oh, good evening. I'm Mrs. Fraser. Yeah, I, I'm glad to see I didn't wake you up. Oh, no, no. I was watching The Late Show. Oh, well, uh, your dog
5: was barking, and I thought maybe something was wrong.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. I've tried everything, but he just won't stop. I hope he hasn't been disturbing you. Perry Mason How can he do it, Sheila? Just because our boss got married, that doesn't mean it's the end of the world. It is for me. Enid, Mr. Charles Stewart Brent is your employer, not your boyfriend. You work for the man. You don't own him.
0: And Bat Masterson. A projected co-starring role in a 1962 sitcom entitled Howie never came to pass, as CBS refused to acquire the pilot episode. Nonetheless, for her contribution to TV, Peggy was awarded a star on the Walk of Fame on Hollywood Boulevard in 1960, perhaps scant consolation for missing out on stardom. A debilitating affliction with arthritis brought about her premature retirement from acting in 1965. She spent much of her sadly few remaining years cared for by her close friend, the actress Jennifer Jones, who also reputedly paid for her medical expenses. Peggy died in July 1980, aged 57. I think it's also worth mentioning that she was in all 24 episodes of the television series So This Is Hollywood, which was on from January to June of 1955.
2: Do you expect April Adams to appear before the camera with an eyelash that absolutely refuses to curl? This <laughs> matches Marion's character. Well, I suppose it's the
3: best he can do. Yes, of course, darling. You are exquisite as always. All right!
2: Come on, let's get ready to make it! The mirror, the mirror!
3: (laughs) I am ready, Murdoch.
2: Quiet! Action, darling. You are cruel, Mrs. Gudgeons. Cruel to me and to my child, whom I know is somewhere in this ghastly workhouse. Go. Very well. I will go. But someday I shall return.
0: And this is Peggy Knudsen's only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. All right. Let's get back to that door slam and to that telephone ringing.
3: Hello, Ralph. Oh, hello, Mr. Sloane. You haven't forgotten what day this is, have you, Ralph, my boy? Just a year since we formed our partnership. Why, oh, of course not, sir. Then we'll meet as we arranged in the same spot in an hour, say. Oh, uh, yes, sir. Oh, and Ralph, don't forget to
0: bring your checkbook. <sniffs> the camera focuses in on Ralph's worried face. Then we get a crossfade to Mr. Sloane's smiling face as he's about to explain what that telephone call was all about. I was a
3: stranger on a park bench, and you, a door-to-door salesman who couldn't open any doors.
0: So they're back on that park bench, and Ralph now wears a coat and a hat and a scarf, a very significant scarf, as he talks to Mr. Sloan.
3: After all, I invented a new kind of dispenser. An excellent gadget, my boy. I see it in all the stores. They tell me it outsells the next leading dispenser three-to-one. Well, I worked very hard at it this year.
0: I know you have. And look at the results. So Ralph has invented a new kind of dispenser, which outsells other dispensers three-to-one. But what kind of dispenser are we talking about? And who goes out and buys dispensers? Ultimately, it's just a MacGuffin. It's nothing. It's something that pushes the plot along. Though we have realized that a year ago, Ralph was a door-to-door salesman who couldn't open any doors. So he hasn't been wealthy very long, which means he hasn't known Herta or been married to Herta for very long. And already she's bleeding him dry. So the two men go for a little walk. Mr. Sloan affectionately takes Ralph's arm and he explains the reason for the meeting. The IOU you gave me, I brought that along. And he pats his left breast pocket I owe you
3: $10,000 and 50% of the profits. I'm going to let you buy it back, my boy. I got you started, but you've done a fine job. And now you deserve to be on your own. Perhaps next year, Mr. Sloan. Why not now? Your share of the profits will more than take care of it. Uh, next year? Well, in that case, Just give me a check for my share of the profits and we'll talk about it then. Well, Ralph? I'm sorry, Mr. Sloan, but you'll just have to wait for your check. I I don't have the money. I don't understand. Sales have been booming. Yes, but I'm carrying a lot of expense. Business entertainment, meeting the right people, things like that. Is it all business? You sure you're not living too high? I wouldn't be if I had a bigger share of the profits. After all, I invented the dispenser. I do all the work. I'm entitled to more. You didn't talk this way when I lent you the money to get started. I was so lightheaded that day, I'd have given you 90%. I wouldn't have taken it. 50% was fair then, and it's fair now. I may be eccentric in the way I do business, but to me, a deal is a deal. Here is your
0: I.O.U. He pats that breast pocket again.
3: If you won't pay me my share of the profits, then I'll have to turn it over to my lawyer. But I've spent the money, all of it then
0: I'm sorry. Now clearly, Mr. Sloan is a decent guy. And because he is, he makes the mistake of thinking that Ralph is a decent guy too. His other problem is he doesn't know he's in an Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode. Because if he did, when Ralph asks him,
3: Have you told your lawyer about our agreement?
0: He wouldn't reply. I've
3: told no one. It was a private transaction from the start. And I had hoped it would always be that way.
0: The two men part. Mr. Sloan sadly goes back to his park bench, not realizing that Ralph is sneaking up behind. The music begins, which is perhaps a tip-off to us that something is about to happen. Mr. Sloan pulls a cigarette case from his left breast pocket and pulls the cigarette out. He never gets to light it as the camera moves up to show Ralph behind, removing his scarf. Then Ralph strikes as the cigarette case falls to the ground. We get a close-up of it. Then there's a close-up of Mr. Sloan's neck with the scarf around it, and Ralph's hands tightening. It's actually a pretty grisly moment. That sound of Mr. Sloan's body falling onto the park bench awakens a tramp who is on another park bench nearby but hidden by vegetation. He watches as Ralph removes Mr. Sloan's billfold and walks away. Now, if you think this tramp is going to notify the police that he witnessed a murder, or at least the aftermath of a murder, then you don't yet realize that the only decent person in this entire episode, except possibly for the cop at the end, was Mr. Sloan. So let's look at Cyril DeLevante, who played Mr. Sloan. He was born Harry Cyril de Levante, and he was the son of a noted Anglo-Italian music professor, Edward Prospero Richard de Levanti. IMDB says most of his movie roles, beginning in 1931, were uncredited bits. He appeared primarily in serials and B horrors, for which dignified English gentlemen were continuously in demand as undertakers, coroners, or townsfolk. So in that vein, he is in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, Lawrence Stewart Talbot,
3: who died at the youthful age of thirty-one. R.I.P. That's it.
0: Give me the chisel. And son of Dracula.
3: Did he get crazy to you, Doctor Peters? No, can't say that he did. A little irrational, maybe. Same as anyone after committing murder. Hmm.
0: As well as the 1943 Phantom of the Opera. The Phantom of 42nd Street, and The Invisible Man's Revenge. He's also in the remake of The Lodger, though he does not have a speaking part. And he's in four episodes of science fiction theater, the suspicion episode Lord Arthur Seville's Crime, which was directed by Robert Stevens, with a teleplay by Francis Cockrell, the thriller episode Cousin Tundifer, and episodes of Gunsmoke, Perry Mason, Run for Your Life, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and The Adventures of Superman.
5: Jeepers, Your Majesty,
3: why do you wear the rabbit's feet? For luck, of course. And these are good luck charms made many thousands of years ago. And you really believe in them, Your Majesty? Certainly, Mr. Kent. What I do, I do for my country. In fact, that's the only reason I go to bed at all, so as I can have my dreams. And you actually govern your country by these dreams? Certainly.
0: He's also Grandpa Petrie in The Dick Van Dyke Show, Mr. Nebbit in Bye Bye Birdie, and Mr. Grubbs in Mary Poppins. Now, as he grew older, his face grew quite lined, making him look very dour. But his smile could light up that face, as you see in this episode as we go from the worried-looking Ralph to the smiling Mr. Sloan. That contrast in his face with that smile was used to great effect, including in episodes of The Twilight Zone. He's in four episodes at all. A penny for your thoughts. How did you know? How did you know, Mr. Poole? It's true, of course. I was thinking
3: of filling my briefcase with the bank's money. Yes. It's a little dream of mine. Have you ever had a dream, Mr. Poole? I have. I don't always plan on Bermuda, though. Sometimes it's Siam, Fiji beautiful exotic places where there are no books to keep the silence quite the contrary, sir he seems in excellent spirits and it's nine weeks now sir nine weeks today that he's
0: been in there a piano in the house are you feeling all right Marvin? i'm very well thank you madam
2: but you're smiling am i you,
5: you most certainly are
0: that's probably because i'm happy sir and Passage on the Lady Anne.
5: Well, have
3: you seen her? Uh, Sorry, sir. But I wouldn't worry if I were you. Where's the captain? I want to have the ship searched, Uh, Captain Prothero is extremely busy, sir. And I've already taken the liberty of alerting the crew. Have you tried the library?
0: Late in his career, he was in Soylent Green, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and the Night Gallery episode, The Sins of the Fathers.
6: Now you must all go!
3: I am one that eats alone. Oh, no, lad. The sin eater eats before the witnesses. Witnesses must be present. Witnesses must witness when the sin passes.
0: But he gained his most acclaim in 1964 for the role of Nano in Night of the Iguana, for which he was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Golden Globe Award.
3: Hannah, tell the lady that my frailty is temporary. I will soon be able to crawl and then to toddle. And before long, I'll be leaping around here like an old mountain goat. Yes, yes, Grandfather, I explained that. Then <laughs> tell the lady that I know some hotels don't want to take dogs, cats or monkeys. And some don't even solicit the patronage of infants in their late 90s. But assure her that if she'll forgive my disgraceful longevity... and this, uh, temporary decrepitude... I will present her with the last signed copy of my first volume of verse, published in... Uh, when, Anna
2: The day that President William McKinley was assassinated,
3: Nono, My grandfather is the poet, Jonathan Coffin. He is 97 years young, and he will be 98 years young on the 5th of October.
0: Cyril also worked as a drama coach, engaged by Douglas Fairbanks, amongst others. And he and his wife, Eva Kitty Peel operated a toy shop in the Los Angeles area in the early 1950s. He's in two more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, though not for a while. His next one is Specialty of the House, episode 12 of season five. And Cyril DeLavante died in 1975 at the age of 86. So what does the tramp do after witnessing the aftermath of Ralph's murder of Mr. Sloan? Well, of course, he robs the body, and back at a flop house, he goes through his loot: a pen, a watch on a chain, a ring, a cigarette lighter, which wasn't lighting when Mr. Sloane tried to use it, and the cigarette case. We get that "da da" sting music that we've had in previous episodes. As the tramp opens the cigarette case, pulls out a cigarette, but notices a note inside the case. He pulls it out and reads it.
3: I promise to pay Alfred Sloan $10,000 and 50% of all profits. Hmm.
0: And it's signed by Ralph Cowell. Then a crossfade to Ralph as he enters his apartment. There's a close-up of the billfold in his hand as he goes through it all. There's lots of money, there's lots of cards, but there's no IOU, of course. He gets another one of those stunned looks on his face, and we move to Ralph at his office, still looking stunned, as his secretary comes in with the newspaper. The secretary is the only person in this episode who does not get a credit. She looks a little like Patricia Donahue, who is in one Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour. We'll see her in A Secret Life, episode 33 of season six, but I can't swear that this is her. As soon as his secretary leaves, there is the sound of yet another door closing. Ralph snaps up the newspaper. And the article he's looking for is right on the front page with the headline, Millionaire Alfred Sloan Found Murdered in Park. Ralph reads part of the article to us. The
3: body of Alfred Sloan, wealthy eccentric, was discovered last night in Washington Park. He had been strangled and robbed. The police are proceeding on the theory that Sloan was the victim of a gang of hoodlums.
0: There's actually a little more to the article, which I think is pretty impressive, seeing as it's on screen for only about 10 seconds. It goes on to say, Identification was delayed several hours because all his personal effects had been stolen. Detective Sergeant James Monroney, in charge of the investigation, said that he died instantly. And then it says, continued on page 3. Maybe Ralph should have kept reading to see the part about all of his personal effects being stolen. But he didn't. Instead, Ralph gets a big smile on his face and heaves a big sigh. He thinks he's home free. As he leaves his office for the evening, he encounters the tramp, who hails a cab for him and then gets in the cab right along beside him. Who the devil are you? I'm Peter J. Goodfellow. I wondered if I had one of my cards with me.
5: Where did you get that cigarette case?
3: It was bequeathed to me by an elderly gentleman I met in the park. Poor chap, he he was foully done in only last night. (laughs) I witnessed the shocking affair myself. Did you see the man who did it? Oh, yes, as clearly as I can see you now. I wonder what I should do about the IOU I found in this case. It was signed by someone named Ralph Cowell. You won't find it there. (laughs) I had the foresight to remove it, Uh, Mr. Cowell. Very valuable, that I owe you. So it's blackmail, is it? Oh, come, must we use that word. I was reduced to my deplorable state through my own follies. uh, Wine, women, and song. I have no voice, but should the occasion warrant it, uh, I shall sing like a canary. How much do you want? Oh, I'm sure we can reach an amicable settlement. Shall we meet at your apartment at, say, nine this evening? No, not my place. Oh, yes, at your place. <laughs> I would
0: prefer it. So, Peter J. Goodfellow is not a good fellow, but he may be related, at least in spirit, to Robin Goodfellow, also known as Puck, the mischievous spirit that appears in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream and elsewhere in English folklore. I do like Goodfellow's dialogue here, his presentation of the cigarette case as his card his telling Ralph that he saw the man who did it as clearly as I can see you now, and this little snippet.
3: I have no voice, but should the occasion warrant it, I shall sing like a canary.
0: Good stuff, well acted, by the man who is our lead actor, Robert Newton. We'll get to Robert Newton a little bit later. For now, a crossfade takes us back to Ralph's apartment, where Ralph is, in the words of the pie lady, dropping into a glass some inordinately large ice cubes. As he's doing that, Herta enters, wearing that black mink stole.
2: Darling, aren't you ready? What? Oh, for heaven's sake, Ralph. You know very well we're due at the Fairleys for the weekend.
3: I'm sorry, Donnie, I can't make it. I have a business appointment.
2: At this hour?
3: Look, if I'm going to pay all your charge accounts, I've got to work day and night.
2: Oh, poor baby. You have been working too hard. But you do want me to
0: look beautiful for you, don't you? Yes, he does, but not at the moment. Herta offers to stay home with him, but he hustles her out the door, and once again, we get that door closing. Remember, the first time the door closed, it was immediately followed by the phone ringing. This time, it's immediately followed by the doorbell ringing.
3: Ah, oh, my dear chip! A pleasant good evening to you. What's the idea? I thought we agreed on nine o'clock. I observed the lady of the house leaving. I saw no reason to wait. Uh, uh, mm. Who is this? Let me present my old friend and colleague, Mr. Fenton Shanks. Pleased to meet you. Good fellow has been touting you up as a winner. Nice place you got here. Fenton is my financial advisor. As a devotee of the sport of kings,
4: He's amazingly adept at calculating the odds. My system has produced 17 winners in the past week. Unfortunately, they've all been paper bets, if you know what I mean.
0: Well, I don't know what he means, so let's look into that. According to bettingsite.org, paper betting refers to participating in sports gambling without fronting any money. Paper sports betting allows you to make normal wagers, but the big advantage is that you don't have to actually risk anything until you're comfortable doing so. Your process for paper betting can range from actually writing the wagers down in a notebook to using advanced computer programs. Not in this case, obviously. In any case, the key is to simulate sports betting without wagering money. And, while we're at it, let's take a look at the man who is playing Fenton Shanks, Johnny Silver. He was a very familiar character actor on television in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Not only because of his expressive face and his Damon Runyon-esque way of speaking, but because of his height. He was four feet, eleven and a half inches tall. Now, it could be that the only reason the expression Damon Runyon-esque comes to mind is because he was best known for playing Benny Southstreet in the original Broadway production and in the film of Guys and Dolls.
5: Fanny
1: South Street, since when do you yell out the name of a place in the open air which is full of police?
4: It was a friendly impulse. I lost my head.
0: And, of course, you can't be in both the Broadway production and the film of Guys and Dolls without being able to sing.
6: I'm can't picking Valentine, cause on the morning line, the guy has guy got him bigger than five to nine. But has make it tap he wins chance, it by a half, but this
4: here in the Telegraph. For for i hear his chance. foot's all right, of this course it all depends if red,
3: red last night. I know big it's big Valentine, the, the morning works
5: look fine, you know the jockey's brother's a friend of mine.
0: In fact, Johnny began singing on the local radio station, as a young man, in Indiana, before moving to California with his family when he was 14. There, he sang, performed, and directed at Los Angeles City College, and he served in World War II, performing for the troops with Mario Lanza. After the war, he moved to New York to continue his career, where he appeared in musicals, operettas, and even recorded an album of Deflater Mouse. Throughout his career, he directed numerous productions for local professional theaters, and he gave voice lessons to people such as Ricardo Montalban and George Kennedy. He performed in the Variety Act, Johnny Silver and His Dolls, around the entire US. And a role in a Bob Hope Chrysler Theater segment called Free of Charge earned him an Emmy nomination. He's mainly known for all sorts of appearances on shows such as The Jack Benny Show, The Danny Thomas Show, The Annie Griffith Show, The Joey Bishop Show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, Dragnet, Bat Masterson, The Untouchables, I Dream of Jeannie, The FBI, H.R. Puffin Stuff, Love American Style, My Three Sons, Ironside, and the list goes on and on. In the 70s, he appeared in a number of episodes of The Odd Couple, in one of which, at least, he again plays a tramp.
5: That's him, that's him, that's Sam, all right. (laughs) Poor Sam, he looks so peaceful, like he was lying on a bench, sleeping it off. You see, a reliable source agrees with me, it's not Felix.
0: And he was a pickpocket in an episode of Barney Miller.
5: If I had known you were a cop, I, I wouldn't have tried to pick your pocket. No kidding. It's just that your pants got me excited. (laughs) Stretchy double nits, wallet bulging out of your pocket like it was a a load of laundry. Come on inside. Everybody else is wearing those tight French jeans. Try and get your hand in them.
0: (laughs) I know what you mean. For those fans of 70s anthology and horror shows, he's in the Night Gallery episode, The Little Black Bag,
4: Proprietor, I want you to consider this bag. Sight unseen, what's inside? is you worth... You, doctor, please. My little girl is very sick. Please, you come. Eight bucks. You want it or you don't? Oh, come on now, doctor. She's so sick. No, please. madam, no, I'm afraid you don't understand. I've retired from active practice. As a matter of fact, I was just uh, leasing my instruments. Temporary thing. I'll be going on a lecture tour very shortly. Rather sizable honorarium And in the meantime. Come on, Doc. Is it yes or no? Eight bucks.
0: And the Kolchak, the Night Stalker episode, The Spanish Moss Murders.
4: year. I know Bobby Ray. You know Bobby Ray. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's all the money I got. see. All right, now what's your name? Pepe, start talking. Pepe Schmeppy. My name is Morris Shapiro from 116th Street and Jerome Avenue in the Bronx. <laughs> <Morris>. <laughs> when you're my size and in my line of work, you gotta do the popular rule routine. Uh-huh. The
5: public expects it.
0: His last appearance was in 1995, a small role in an episode of Seinfeld.
4: One pineapple. No pineapple. Just cherry, lemon, and tutti frutti.
0: He's in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next is The Cream of the Jest, episode 24 of season 2. Johnny Silver died in 2003 at the age of 84. And his obituary in Variety says he is survived by two daughters, Stephanie Silver, actress, and Jenny Silver, singer-songwriter, who worked together as a singing duet called The Silver Bells. Okay, so Goodfellow is helping himself to Ralph's Liquor, And Shanks is helping himself to a glass of water, since he's a teetotaler whose only vice is gambling. But Ralph wants to get down to business.
3: How much do you want for the IOU? Well, now let me see. Uh, uh, Say a thousand? How does that sound to you? It has a nice ring to it. So be it. Uh, One thousand dollars a month. Are you crazy? I don't have that kind of money. Oh, come, come. You have a lucrative business and no partner to split the profits with. But $1,000 a month, why, that's impossible. Think of the alternative, Mr. Cowell. <laughs> a murder is frowned upon in prison society. Only how do we make sure of regular payments? Our pigeon could just fly away and uh, forget to leave a forwarding address. My dear boy, you've put your finger on the loophole. How do you suggest we plug it? May
5: I call your attention to the excellent guest room?
3: You mean take up residence here?
5: A capital suggestion.
3: You you can't do that. How about my wife? I'll pay you the thousand every month. When do we move in? Uh, I take it we've already done so.
0: (laughs) There's some nice shadows in this scene, particularly Shanks' shadow on the guest room door as he calls Goodfellow's attention to the excellent guest room. So when Herta comes home, she's in for a surprise. As the pie lady puts it, she's alarmed when Goodfellow, wearing one of Ralph's suits, very comically ill-fitting, greets her and kisses her on the cheek. Fenton, also comically dressed in a three-piece suit, claims he bounced Ralph on his knee when Ralph was a baby. Ralph is clearly older than Fenton. But you have to love the way he puts it.
5: Pleased to meet you, Cousin Herdy. Bounced your husband on my knee when he was a little punk.
0: Herta heads right for the bedroom to talk to Ralph, and the two derelicts get an eyeful as they watch her from behind, even after she's left the room, and yes, with another door slam.
3: A rare wench, to say the least. I got a hunch she's trouble.
0: Aren't they all? Ralph, of course, has to pretend that they really are his cousins.
2: The
3: only reason I never mention them is because we just don't talk about that side of the family. I can see why. Look, we all have relatives we're not proud of.
2: Well, maybe, but you don't have to invite them into my home. It's my home, and they're going to stay right here until I find a way to get rid of them. It's very easy. Just walk in there and throw them out. Ah, you
3: don't know what you're talking about. Oh,
2: yes, I do. It seems that your family is more important to you than I am.
3: Darling, you know that isn't true. Look, for my sake, please try to put up with them. I promise you they'll be gone within a week.
0: But in the very next scene...
2: Listen, you, you've been freeloading around here for nine days. Why don't you blow?
0: Freeloading? Blow? How uncouth.
2: Yeah, well, I can be a lot more uncouth. I'm fed up right to here with you. Have a
3: noggin of this. It'll calm your nerves.
2: I don't want anything.
3: Oh, come, a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou. (laughs) May I
4: have this dance?
2: I would rather dance with an ape.
0: And in the scene after that...
5: Oh, Ralphie!
4: Sorry to trouble you, pal, but I find myself temporarily out of funds. What, again? What's
5: wrong with that system? You haven't had a winner for three weeks. Nothing. The nags just ain't been following it. Yeah, well, that's tough. You've
3: had all you're going to get from me.
0: Of course, that isn't true. And Shanks flashes the cigarette case at Ralph to remind him of why they're there to begin with. And then...
2: Ralph! Ralph, my furs, they're gone. My mink stole. Everything's stolen.
5: You took them. The skins? Yeah. I had to pawn them yesterday. Or was it the day before? No, that was the day I sold the silverware. But don't worry, Ralphie, here are the tickets. You can bail them out someday. Why don't you sell the furniture, too?
3: That's all that's left. You've ruined my business, cleaned out my bank account, taken every cent I've got. What more do you
4: want? Don't get excited, Ralphie. I'll just have to pawn something else, that's all.
0: Note the door slam in that scene. It seems like every time the door slams, it's bad news for Ralph. This time, when he opens the door up again, Herta is packing. Ralph is broke. And she's had enough. But she does ask him...
2: What have they got on you?
0: Enough to hang me.
3: Heard her, I killed a man.
2: You did what?
3: Oh, I must have been out of my mind. We needed money. He was a silent partner. I figured that if I got rid of him, I, everything would be mine. So I killed him. good fellow saw me do it.
0: We've gotten to know Herta well enough now so that her reaction should not be surprising. I can't believe it. You actually
2: killed somebody. I never thought you had it in you.
0: In fact, she goes on to try to urge Ralph to murder Goodfellow, who is asleep in the other room. As the pie lady puts it, but as Herta is Lady Macbething it up, Goodfellow comes into the room quoting Macbeth.
3: Matix stay here, a voice I sleep no more. Macbeth
0: doth murder sleep. And that pretty much spells an end to that. But after Ralph leaves, Goodfellow continues to ogle Herta. He's been doing it throughout the episode. And this time he tells her
3: Well, I'm not entirely without resources, my dear.
0: Does that mean money?
3: The equivalent of ten G's.
0: Which is not entirely true. The 10 G's involves the IOU. And Ralph is now broke. So where are the 10 G's coming from? And while we're on that, where is Ralph going? He left the apartment with another door slam. Poor boy, you know, he really
3: is a bit under the weather. Ah, now I see why. Uh, You're leaving him.
0: But he just came in. This is all one continuous scene. He enters. Shanks tries to tap him for money. Herta yells that her furs are gone. Ralph goes in. When she's packing up, he tells her he killed a man. Goodfellow disrupts it all. Ralph leaves. He's been in the apartment about five minutes. Anyway, Ralph's departure allows Herta to to suck up to Goodfellow, hoping to get that money. And we see just a glimpse of her in the mirror. as she sees her prospect for wealth brightening. You know, I think I'll change my mind and have that drink after all.
3: Splendid. (laughs) And how about a little dinner later? I have an excellent recipe for a dish named Mulligan.
2: Can we eat it with our fingers? Your friend sold all the silverware. Poor Fenton, he's had a bad run
3: lately.
0: The dish named Mulligan refers to Mulligan Stew. As Wikipedia says, Mulligan Stew is a type of stew said to have been prepared by American hobos in camps in the early 1900s. Another variation of Mulligan Stew is community stew, a stew put together by several homeless people by combining whatever food they have or can collect. Community stews are often made at hobo jungles or at events designed to help homeless people. Goodfellow pours her to a drink. The sour look on her face, as she wonders what concoction he's put together, is terrific. And then they sit on the couch.
2: You know, I don't really believe you have $10,000. Oh, come, do you doubt me? Oh, no, no, not really. It's that horse player I'm thinking of.
3: Well, it's your husband that worries me. He prowls around my room at night like a common burglar.
2: Well, surely you don't keep it in there. Ralph's bound to find it. Not a chance.
3: He lacks imagination. One can hide an old envelope in a diversity of places.
2: An old envelope.
3: But poor Ralph is so systematic. Last night he searched the bureau. (laughs) So tonight he won't even think of looking there. (laughs) It's the weakness of the orderly mind.
2: Huh. Well, happy days. To you, my dear.
0: The weakness of the orderly mind. But Goodfellow has his own weakness.
3: Wine, women, and song.
0: And so the scene crossfades to Goodfellow asleep on the couch, the pitcher of booze empty next to him as Hertha goes looking for the envelope in the bureau in the guest room. And she finds it. The trouble is... Inside appear to be nothing more than five pictures of pinup girls. Exasperated, she comes out, says, $10,000, and throws the pinups on Goodfellow's chest. He does not wake up. Now notice there's a door slam as Herta leaves the guest room.
2: $10,000.
0: And then two more in rapid succession as Herta enters her bedroom, and then as the scene changes, Ralph enters the apartment. Once again, it seems to bode ill for Ralph as he finds a note from Herta attached to the trellis next to the front door, the same group of plants that Herta poked her head through in the opening scene, to say,
2: Why sure, Ralph. You just bought me a black mist
0: stole. The note is short and to the point. Dear Ralph, Goodbye, Herta." But Ralph is about to have a little good news, because the IOU is taped to the back of one of the pinup girl photos, and it is now in plain sight, lying on Goodfellow's sleeping chest. Ralph grabs it and puts a match to it before Goodfellow wakes up.
3: What on earth are you doing? What do you think I'm doing? It's the I.O.U. What? I told you I'd find it sooner or later. Where's Herter? She's gone, but she'll be back. But you won't. Come on, you're leaving right now. All right, there's no need to use violence. Oh, what's going on here? Uh, Fenton, uh, the jig is up. (laughs) Well, it was great while it lasted. Get out. No hard feelings, old man. One last pawn ticket for your collection. Uh, Dear boy, Uh, I've only one regret that I was demolished by a woman. (laughs) Fenton... Unless you have other plans, I suggest Florida again this year. A delightful weather for riding the rods.
0: <laughs> and another slammed door. This one seems to be bringing good news. As, in our very next scene, Herta is back, all smiles, after sharing a kiss with Ralph. Welcome home, darling. Don't ever let me leave again.
3: I know just how to keep you. That's for you, I think.
0: Go on. The last time we heard that doorbell was when Goodfellow first showed up. But this is more like the first time we heard the doorbell, at the very beginning of the episode, with Ralph looking in the mirror as Herta answered the door. After Herta leaves the room, Ralph again looks in the mirror, paralleling the beginning of the episode, this time wiping off lipstick with his handkerchief. Just as at the beginning, we hear Herta off-screen saying, Thank you. It sounds pretty darn close, to the thank you that we heard at the beginning of the episode. But they're not quite the same. Here they are together.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: There's another way in which they're slightly different. In the opening scene, we hear the door close. Thank you. But here, we hear the door open. Thank you. And Herta doesn't close the door. So does that mean that Ralph's troubles are over? It sure seems that way, as Herta opens Ralph's gift of yet another fur stole, and they kiss again. But no, the open door only allows our final character to enter unannounced.
5: Mr. Cowell? Yes, what is Your door was open. Detective Sergeant Monroney.
0: If that name sounds familiar, it's because it was in the body of the newspaper article that Ralph read about Mr. Sloan's murder. But Ralph did not read that part aloud. So you had to read really fast back in 1956 in order to find that name. Detective Sergeant Monroney is played by Robert Fulk. He, as a young man, attended the University of Pennsylvania and studied to be an architectural draftsman, something he did as a living in addition to his acting. An article in the Chicago Tribune in the 50s reported, he keeps his finger in architecture because he finds it good therapy for the tensions that build up while performing. According to IMDb, he made his Broadway debut at the age of 23 in As Husbands Go. He reprised the role two years later and supplemented his acting work by helping cast road companies of Broadway hits and by working with the press agents of various shows. He became friendly with legendary Broadway director, producer, actor George Abbott while playing Watson Brown in John Brown, a Broadway flop about the abolitionist leader and began a long period of employment under Abbott in a string of Broadway hits. An encounter with Betty Davis led to folks hiring by Warner Brothers, not as an actor, but as a dialogue director. He moved to Hollywood in 1939 and worked in that capacity on a number of films, including The Seahawk and The Maltese Falcon. In 1942, he enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Forces and was assigned to make training films with the first motion picture unit in Culver City, California. Discharged in 1946, he worked for Cecil B. DeMille as a dialogue director on Unconquered and then made his non-military film debut in 1948's Roadhouse. He quickly became a familiar face in movies, playing police officers, Western sheriffs, thugs, and many other types, often of a none-too-bright intelligence. He had recurring roles on numerous TV series, including Lassie, Bonanza, The Rifleman, and as Curly Bill Brocius on Tombstone Territory. You can find him in East of Eden.
2: It's going to work
3: because
5: it's got to work. It's got to work because I said so. Well, if it don't work, it ain't that kid's fault. I never saw anybody work so hard in my life. Rebel Without a Cause. Can you tell me why you killed those puppies, Plato? No,
0: sir. The Adventures of Superman.
5: You deliver me Superman, stretched out like a fish, and I'll give you everything I got, 10 million.
0: I Love Lucy. Would a policeman be of any help?
2: Oh, good grief, no, don't get a policeman.
0: <laughs> and Green Acres. Planting crops you're going to lose money on? We're, we're,
5: we're farming to make money. Douglas, we can do without your radical ideas.
0: He had a recurring role as Ed Davis, husband of Myrtle Davis, played by Vivi Janice, in Father Knows Best. Here he is in a clip from the same episode we referenced with Vivi back in episode 16. Oh, I
5: see. And just when was all of this arranged? Well, I don't know exactly. Um, I was sort of planning to drop out of this thing, but then Myrtle told me you'd talk Margaret into joining us, so I thought I'd suffer through it for a little while.
0: <laughs> and here he is as the gatekeeper in the Twilight Zone episode, The Hunt.
5: How old are you, Neighbor Simpson? Well, sir, I've been walking the earth for something like 70 years now. You've arrived at the gate uh, 1045. Uh, I know it's none of my business, but would you tell me what you're writing down in that book? I just need to know one more thing, Neighbor Simpson. How'd you die?
0: This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents Appearance, and Robert Folk died in 1989 at the age of 80, and now we come to the twist, and it's a pretty good twist. I think it's a pretty unexpected twist.
5: We're checking on some furs and silverware that were pawned in your name a couple of weeks ago, I believe. We want to be quite certain that you actually pawned them yourself. Why not? Just checking, Mr. Cowell. Are um, these your signatures? Yes. And you pawned them yourself? Of course.
3: <laughs> There's nothing illegal about pawning one's own
5: things, is there? You no, know if they are your things. Well, of course they are. Ralph buys me all my furs. Well, I'm not talking about the furs or the silverware. But this ticket, signed by you, was for a cigarette case that belonged to Alfred Sloan. It was stolen from him at the time of his murder. I think you'd better come down to the station and explain how you happened to pawn it. Come along, Mr. go.
0: So, as the music rises, in sort of a variation of the sad trombone theme, we get one final door slam, which is very definitely bad news for Ralph. But we also get one final mirror shot, as Hertha, all uncaring about Ralph's fate, shrugs in sort of an oh well moment, and then admires herself with her new fur in the mirror. Of the different mirror scenes, Jack Seabrook says that the shots display Ralph and Herta's vanity and literally hold a mirror up to their behavior, which is both criminal and selfish. He adds that The Derelicts is an excellent episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, where a solid script, crisp direction, and strong performances by the cast combine to make a half hour of noir mixed with comedy. And I agree with that. It is an excellent episode. It's a study in egoism and amorality of opportunism and narcissism as represented by those mirrors and of people getting what they can when they can and not looking back as represented by all those slams of the door. Now, it sure seems like Herta has gotten away with things here. Not that she ever really did anything criminal, but it definitely feels like it's time for a little retribution in Hitchcock's outro. And we will get some retribution, but not about Herta. So maybe we can just assume that once Ralph goes to jail, those furs are gonna be taken away from her. But I'm sure Herta will land on her feet somewhere. Now, I was going to get right to Hitch's outro, but I feel like I've forgotten something. Oh, that's right. I haven't yet talked about Robert Newton. Robert Newton is mostly forgotten today, but in his time, he was a big deal. In 1944, British exhibitors voted him the 10th most popular British film star and in 1951, he was voted the sixth most popular British film star. He was also voted one of the top ten British money-making stars in the Motion Picture Herald fame poll from 1947 to 1951. Wikipedia says that along with Errol Flynn, Newton was one of the more popular actors among the male juvenile audience of the 1940s and early 1950s, especially with British boys. Known for his hard-living lifestyle, he was cited as a role model by the actor Oliver Reed and The Who's drummer Keith Moon. Robert Newton was the son of landscape painter Algernon Newton, and he began his acting career at the age of 16 at the Birmingham Repertory Theater, where he also served as assistant stage manager and painted scenery. He became a stage star when Noel Coward cast him in the musical review Sweet, and he later appeared on Broadway, in Noel Coward's Private Lives, taking over from his friend Lawrence Olivier. In 1939, he played Horatio in Olivier's Hamlet at the Old Vic. Also in 1939, young, trim, and good-looking, he played the hero in Alfred Hitchcock's Jamaica Inn.
3: I know what you've done? Tide's going out now, but it'll be high water again before dark. We can't stay here without that boat. Oh, well, we'll have to run for it. That's all, as soon as the tide's low enough. Yeah, trust me to land myself with a woman. On the other hand, of course, you did save my life. I hope you make better use of it in the future. Yeah, well, that's a tall order for a desperate character like me.
2: No
3: doubt. A smuggler and a cut it, I think, is it.
2: Very likely.
3: Do you think there's any hope for me? Tell me, what ought I to do?
2: Anything you please.
3: Well, I used to be a sailor. I could go back to sea. Eh?
2: I'm not in the least interested.
3: You must be. Don't forget you're responsible for
2: it. I am not. Oh, yes.
3: But for you, I shouldn't be here at all. You can't deny that see, when we're safe and true, I, I put myself entirely in your hands. Oh,
2: please be quiet. In
0: 1944, he played the lead in This Happy Breed, directed by David Lean.
3: You and me don't uh, quite see things the same way, do we? No, I suppose not. It's a pity, too, and uh, I don't see what there is to be done about it. Have you got any ideas? Well, I'm not a kid anymore, you know, Dad. I'm grown up now. Yeah, I realize that, all right. Well, I know you think everything I believe in is wrong. No, that's just, you just where you make a mistake, son. I don't think any such thing...
0: In 1948, he plays a particularly nasty Bill Sykes in David Lean's production of Oliver Twist.
2: Nancy will go,
3: won't you, my dear? Where's? Only just to the police court, my dear, what do you say?
2: That it won't do, Fagin, so it's no use your trying it on.
3: What do you mean by that?
2: Well, what'd I say, Bill?
3: Well, you have the very one for it. No one around here knows anything about you.
2: And as I don't want them to neither, it's rather more no than yes with me, Bill.
3: She'll go, Fagin. Oh, no, she won't, Fagin. Oh, yes, she will, Fagin. And in
0: 1952, he plays the relentless Inspector Javert in Louis Milestone's production of Les Miserables.
3: You think you can bargain my life for freedom? There's no bargain. I give you your life. Don't you know that as long as I live, I'll hunt you? But this will not change it. You're a convict, a criminal. You're sick. Your mind is sick. Go quickly while there's still a chance. You want me to grovel and thank you. You want me to see the nobility of your soul. I spit on your nobility. You were a criminal.
0: But it's in 1950 that he takes a role that really establishes the rest of his career when he plays Long John Silver in Treasure Island.
3: And I say there'll be no killing till I give the word. What's come over you, John? When you were sailing with flint, it was cut and rip. John's gone too genteel for bloodletting. You sick-headed swab. Who got rid of arrows so quiet that no one suspected? Not even young Orkins, who brought me the rum for the job. And who get any firearms in the same way when the time comes?
0: Wikipedia says, born in Dorset in the West Country of England, and growing up in Cornwall near Land's End, Newton's exaggeration of his West Country accent is credited with popularizing the stereotypical pirate voice. Newton has become the patron saint of the annual International Talk Like a Pirate Day. This is from TalkLikeAPirate.com, their message on September 19th. Ahoy thar, mates! Today is International Talk Like a Pirate Day. Thanks for spreading the word. And the word is... Ah From there there was no turning back. In 1952, he played Blackbeard the Pirate in Blackbeard the Pirate. Blackbeard?
3: No, I be Blackbeard.
2: If I had a pistol, I'd shoot out your gizzard pin.
3: Ah, a fiery wench, eh? And in
0: 1954, he played the title role in the Treasure Island sequel, Long John Silver.
3: Now serve up your peace. We were sailing here to Portobello aboard the good ship, Hope of Bristol, when we were taken by Mendoza. El Toro, away. I killed every able man-jack aboard. And, and we was bearing Governor Strong's little daughter. Her he's holding for ransom. Of what concern be the governor's daughter <sighs> to me? This stinks of treachery. Why did Mendoza let you live, you scurvy dog? Uh, throw him out on the cobbles to die.
2: Aboard were a lad named Jim Hawkins.
3: Jim Hawkins. Him that was shipmate with me at Treasure Island.
0: By this time, he was well into a life of heavy drinking. IMDB says, after being signed for the color remake of Svengali with a contract clause about his drinking, Newton behaved very irresponsibly on the film and fled to Australia, where he filmed the Long John Silver movie and TV shows. When he returned, he was sued for $375,000 by the producers of Svengali, who had had to replace him with Donald Walfitt. In Australia, he went on to make 26 episodes of a TV series called The Adventures of Long John Silver. In which Long John Silver becomes sort of a good guy.
3: Oh, it it was a black day for the young'un when he sailed onto my horizon. You're not that bad. Oh, yes, I be. And if the lads turned out bad, why white is my fault. And mine too. Living in a tavern and associating with ruffians. Ah, you're right. Uh, this be no fit place for him.
0: While filming in Australia in nineteen fifty four, Newton was declared bankrupt with unpaid tax in the United Kingdom of 47,000 pounds. And before being cast in Around the World in 80 Days as Inspector Fix, it was stipulated in his contract that he remained sober throughout every day of filming.
3: Here, just a minute. Where's the gentleman who owns this passport, this Mr. Phileas Fogg? My master is staying on board. Indeed. Well, he'll have to report in person to the British Consulate to establish his identity. Is that necessary? Not necessary, mandatory.
0: He kept his word. However, once the production came to an end, he went on a drinking marathon, and it's believed that this was what killed him. This, his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode, aired just 49 days before his death in 1956 at the age of 50. Now, as I mentioned, Robert Newton played the hero in Alfred Hitchcock's Jamaica Inn. That is the closest of the four associations with this episode and Alfred Hitchcock. But as I said, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Oh, who am I kidding? Of course I'm going to go down that rabbit hole. What better time to look at Jamaica Inn? There is a nice little special feature on the Jamaica Inn DVD entitled Shipwrecked in a Studio hosted by our old friend Donald Spoto, and here's how he describes the film.
6: It's a sinister tale of pirates who lure ships to their doom on the rocky, storm-tossed coast of southwest England. The characters are wreckers and smugglers, thieves and killers, And the story features acts of murder and torture. There's even a suicide thrown in for good measure. Well, after all, for Hitchcock, these kinds of things are just ordinary everyday events, and besides, nobody's perfect.
0: Now, while Robert Newton is the hero of the film, Jem Traherne, he's not the star. The two stars are Charles Lawton and Maureen O'Hara. So how did they get together? And how did Hitchcock get involved? Here's Donald Spoto again.
6: In the 1930s, an Irish teenager named Maureen Fitzsimmons had considerable success on stage in her native Dublin, but everything changed when she met Charles Lawton, the famous actor and producer. Lawton was so impressed when he met young Miss Fitzsimmons that he decided to put her under exclusive contract to himself. But first, he changed her name to Maureen O'Hara. Lawton decided to cast her in a movie version of Daphne du Maurier's 1936 best-selling novel, Jamaica Inn, with Lawton himself as the star and Alfred Hitchcock as the director. As it happened, Hitchcock had his eye on a new Daphne du Maurier novel called Rebecca. And what better way to throw his hat in the ring as the potential director of that, then first to bring Jamaica in to the screen.
0: Now, during this time, Hitchcock had finalized his deal with David O. Selznick to come over to the United States. And Donald Spoto says in his book, The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock, that David Selznick had not decided whether Hitchcock's first assignment would be the Titanic or Rebecca, and the contract had left the matter open. His indecision stemmed partly from a desire to see how Hitchcock would handle the spectacular, watery special effects of Jamaica Inn, and he was not at all sure which of the two projects would turn up the most effective script. Hitchcock, for his part, was not thrilled about doing Jamaica Inn. After returning to London after making his deal with Selznick, Hitchcock, as Donald Spoto puts it, was eager to get Jamaica Inn over and done with. Still, there were some things that intrigued him. To
6: sustain his interest during the production of Jamaica Inn, Hitchcock paid special attention to the technical challenges of filming shipwrecks and storms at sea in a London studio. The opening sequences of Jamaica Inn were highly praised by critics at the time. The attack on a ship and its crew by the marauding shipwreckers looks extraordinarily authentic. And even today, it's hard to believe that it was staged and rehearsed and photographed entirely in a studio. Hitchcock brilliantly planned every shot in collaboration with his cinematographers, Harry Stradling and Bernard Knowles. He was
0: also interested, as Donald Spoto tells us, in the art and set
6: design. He had begun his career as an artist and set designer in the era of silent movies. And for Jamaica Inn, he supervised the design and the construction of vast sets, and he drew on all the resources of modern art direction. For example, trapdoors and winding staircases and low ceilings and a maze of rooms and unusual gothic lighting effects. And then there was the main character. Hitchcock was fascinated, of course, by the mysterious leading character of Daphne du Maurier's novel, the chilling boss of a gang of cutthroats, a sadistic and deranged country parson. Alas, Paramount Pictures, the American distributor of the movie, had to abide by the rules of censorship. And that, of course, required that a movie villain could never be a clergyman. Hence, Lawton, the mad clergyman, had to become Lawton, the deranged country squire. Well, this disappointed Hitchcock because, as you may know, he loved to challenge the prevailing taboos of his time. Hitchcock said, I'm fascinated by the Jekyll and Hyde nature of his character. And Lawton plays this type of split personality that Hitchcock placed at the center of later masterworks like Shadow of a Doubt, Strangers on a Train, Psycho, and frenzy. Lawton wanted to remind the audience that he had taken home the Oscar for his portrait of Henry VIII a few years earlier, and this was precisely how he insisted that the early scenes of the movie be photographed. Just watch him presiding over the dinner table, wielding his knife and fork, and talking boozy nonsense.
3: i have asked you to drink the health of his brand new majesty, George the Fourth. I forgot. In fact, I haven't been on speaking terms for years with a fat fool.
6: As it happened, Hitchcock and Lawton made an ill-suited match. The director found the star's egocentric behavior on set completely exasperating. But since Lawton was the producer, Hitchcock could do nothing about his erratic methods. Lawton demanded take after take of even his briefest close-ups until he thought each one was perfect. And finally, he turned in a performance that you may think sometimes borders on caricature. But that may not be inappropriate. In fact, it may be just right, for a character who's quite out of his mind and who is still all the more disturbing because he's capable of disarming kindness and gentleness alongside his tendency to sadism and murder.
0: Now, aside from Charles Lawton, Maureen O'Hara, and Robert
6: Newton, there is an interesting mix of actors. Here's Donald Spoto again. Just as Hitchcock preferred to work with technicians who knew what he wanted, so he liked to engage actors who came prepared with little bits of business, mannerisms and gestures that revealed character every bit as much as dialogue. In fact, Alfred Hitchcock tried to gather a kind of stock company. Leslie Banks, the surly, growling leader of the gang in Jamaica Inn, had already acted for Hitchcock as the doting father of the kidnapped girl in the first version of The Man Who Knew Too Much. And Wiley Watson, who is cast here as the pious thug named Salvation, had already achieved movie immortality as Mr. Memory in The 39 Steps.
4: Ah, uh, you can laugh now. But you're seeing a
6: different tune when you're roasting
4: in the consuming fire that's waiting for all of us.
6: And Basil Radford, who provides some comic relief here, had already done the same thing for Hitchcock in Young and Innocent and in The Lady Vanishes. Marie Alt had played the mother of the blonde leading lady in Hitchcock's first talking picture, The Lodger, in 1926. Here... She has a bit part in the beginning of the picture as a very nervous passenger in the coach, meeting Maureen O'Hara. The coachman in that sequence was played by Aubrey Mather, another Hitchcock veteran.
1: That place gives me the creeps. That place, Jamaica Inn, has got a bad
5: name. It's not healthy, that's why those queer things go on there.
0: And then there's Emlyn Williams, who was, besides being an actor, a well-known playwright, author of, among others, Night Must Fall which I believe we referenced in an earlier episode. He assisted in the rewrites of the script, as did Alma Revel, J.B. Priestley, and plenty of other people, resulting in a finished product that Daphne de Maurier did not like at all. The critics didn't like it either. The Film Weekly of London said, The makers of the film seem less at pains to make our hair stand on end than to prove to us that they can fake a shipwreck as well as Hollywood. New York critic Frank S. Nugent said it will not be remembered as a Hitchcock picture, but as a Charles Lawton picture. And critic Howard Barnes called it singularly dull and uninspired. In spite of that, it did quite well at the box office. And it didn't hurt Hitchcock on his way to America to make Rebecca. In fact, Donald Spoto in Spellbound by Beauty quotes Emlyn Williams, who was once asked what he learned from Hitchcock during the filming of Jamaica Inn. And he said, I learned that it was a good time to go to Hollywood. Spoto also quotes Maureen O'Hara on her view of Hitchcock, and she said, Hitchcock had little interest in the film, and he didn't make much of an impression on me. His physical appearance was very much a part of his eccentricity. He was always very neat and tidy in his appearance, but he moved very awkwardly because of his weight. He rarely socialized and usually spoke in a low cockney whisper to keep the set quiet. As usual, when faced with criticism of his films, Hitchcock does not bother to defend it. In Hitchcock Truffaut, he says, Jamaica Inn was an absurd thing to undertake. If you examine the basic story, you will see that it's a whodunit. At the end of the 18th century, Mary, a young Irish girl, goes to Cornwall to live with her aunt Patience, whose husband, Joss, is an innkeeper. All sorts of things happen in that tavern, which shelters scavengers and wreckers, who not only seem to enjoy total immunity, but who are also kept thoroughly informed of the movements of ships in the area. Why? Because at the head of this gang of thugs is a highly respectable man, a justice of the peace no less, who masterminds all of their operations. It was completely absurd because logically the judge should have entered the scene only at the end of the adventure. He should have carefully avoided the place and made sure he was never seen in the tavern. Therefore, it made no sense to cast Charles Lawton in the key role of the justice of the peace. Realizing how incongruous it was, I was truly discouraged, but the contract had been signed. Finally, I made the picture, and although it became a box office hit, I'm still unhappy over it. So there's not much love for Jamaica Inn, even from Hitchcock himself. And that's too bad, because I think it's a terrific little melodrama. It's a great romp of a movie with plenty of action and excitement and good performances, including Charles Lawton's, which I agree with Donald Spoto is way over the top, but maybe just right for that character. I haven't included many clips from the film, but I do want to include this one reminiscent of the moment in the episode we just watched in which Mr. Sloan does not realize that it's not a good idea to tell Ralph that he hasn't told anyone about his IOU. In this case, Jem Terhearn has revealed to the Squire that he is secretly an agent of the Crown without realizing that Charles Lawton is the villain he's looking for.
3: My researchers took me to Jamaica Inn. The landlord Merlin is the ringleader. That wreck last night was carried out by his men. You were actually there? No, thank heaven. I was still on probation. I helped carry the goods up afterwards. Have you... um, Have you reported all this to your superiors? No, not yet. I'm after bigger fry than Joss Merlin. I don't follow you. Um, you uh, said um, he was the ringleader At Jamaica Inn, yes. But he gets his orders from outside. His information comes from outside. His thinking's done for him outside. By whom? I don't know. Merlin's own wife doesn't know. The gang don't even know. But that's the man we've got to find.
0: And Donald Spoto, in The Art of Alfred Hitchcock, mentions another moment. He says, Jamaica Inn has its perhaps unintentionally comic moments and there is much impossibly crude melodrama, but there is also at least one shining moment of real pathos. Among the gang is an adolescent lad, always relegated to servant status among them, and to his chagrin, treated with a condescending consideration for his age. When the group is arrested by the Navy police, the handcuffs slip from his slender wrists and he must be bound with rope. He objects.
3: Why are you doing that? Why can't I be chained? Stop. Stop. I want to be chained like the others. Listen to me. I've got a right to be. I'm the same as them. I've done what they've done, haven't I? I want to hang with them.
0: At once, the boy realizes the weight of his words and his voice breaks.
3: Well, hang me. I don't want to hang. I don't want to die. Not yet. I'm only a boy. I'm only 17.
0: His terror wells up, his tears glisten, and the camera, allowing the privacy of his panic, moves slowly down the row of his older companions who are touched by the single note of human emotion which has broken out among them. It is a scene of tragic lyricism and however briefly raises this motley crew and film to something like truth. I agree with Spoto there, but I don't agree with him when later in The Art of Alfred Hitchcock, he compares Hitchcock's costume dramas and determines that Under Capricorn is far more satisfactory than Jamaica Inn. I find Under Capricorn to be slow and talky. And if you must only watch one Hitchcock costume drama in your life, I would recommend that you make it Jamaica Inn. Okay, so through Robert Newton, Jamaica Inn is one of our connections to this Hitchcock episode. What are the other three, however tenuous? Well, the second one is, as I said, that Cyril de Levante was featured in the remake of The Lodger although he has no lines, and the remake was not made by Alfred Hitchcock. Our third link comes from Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, in which they say the scene where the bums move in and take advantage is similar to the scene in Hitchcock's blackmail, where the blackmailer comes into the family's home and expects to be treated like a guest. And our fourth link comes from IMDb. They say that Hitchcock thought Louis Jourdan was all wrong as the lower-class groom-lover in the Paradigm case, but he was overruled by producer David O. Selznick. Hitchcock wanted Robert Newton for the part. So Hitch has finished his lunch, and he's wiping his mouth as he gives us his outro.
1: As you might expect, before Mr. Goodfellow and Mr. Shanks had reached the street... They had walked into the inviting arms of two luscious young ladies, an occurrence that was especially to Goodfellow's liking. But since the ladies were women, his enjoyment was at best momentary.
0: Aha, at last, retribution. Here's what John McCarty and Brian Kelleher have to say about that in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, An Illustrated Guide to the Ten-Year Television Career of the Master of Suspense. One of the more serious problems posed by the series' emphasis on ironic or twist endings was that episodes would frequently conclude with the criminal seeming to have gotten away with his crime. This was strictly against the policies of the Motion Picture Production Code, which also applied to films made for television, as well as the policies of the network's own Bureau of Standards and Practices. Our crime does pay endings created quite a stir with the network's censors, says Norman Lloyd. We were always having difficulties because in order to inject the proper measure of irony, which was the key ingredient in the Hitchcock show, it was often necessary for the bad guy to appear to prevail. It would have been more difficult to get that ironic twist in at the end with the use of a so-called happy ending. As a result, there was a total necessity for a disclaimer. Hitchcock and company got around the problem by providing the necessary disclaimer in his closing comments. At the end of one of our little stories, Hitchcock said, I come on and give some small hint to the effect that the murderer didn't really get away with it at all. Let us call it a small tolerance. I do it simply as a necessary gesture to morality. In fact, he and James Allardyce enjoyed the challenge, for it very often allowed them to literally get away with murder. Norman Lloyd says what happened was that Allardyce would write and Hitch would delight in delivering a so-called retribution that was actually worse than having none at all. And here is Norman Lloyd from the Alfred Hitchcock A Look Back segment from the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1 DVDs talking about retribution, specifically about the episode Lamb to the slaughter.
4: Broadcast standards in those days, no one could get away with murder. That's what it came down to.
1: As for Mary Maloney, she would have gone scot-free if she hadn't tried to do in her second
4: husband the same way. They didn't know whom they were dealing with. They were dealing with Jimmy Allardyce, who had the person of Hitchcock (laughs) as his vessel. (laughs) And so, retribution. She married again and decided to do away with the second husband in a similar fashion. Unfortunately,
1: he was the forgetful type and had forgotten to plug in the freezer. The meat was as soft as jelly.
4: Now, if you accept that as retribution, (laughs) that's retribution. (laughs) But you see, Hitch never gave up. (laughs) He would always, in some way, get his point in, which let the audience know we're only kidding. (laughs) It was beautiful.
0: Norman Lloyd, by the way, is, at the time of this recording, 105 years old. And here's Hitch himself in an interview in 1966, talking just briefly about the
1: subject. Uh, They have a department in all networks called Continuity Acceptance. I've heard about this, yes. uh, Which is in term, the censor. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I bought a story for our our show, which is a classic, Lord Dunsany's short story, Two Bottles of Relish. We've never been able to get that one by ever. Mm. And they, they do exercise quite a control over um, the subject matter. And then if one, uh, if one had a murder story and the person got away with it, I would always have to go on and uh, pronounce the retribution clause. <laughs> like, for example, in the, the show I shot with Barbara Bel Geddes when she socked her husband with a frozen leg of lamb and all the police came in and ate it all up while they're looking for the murder weapon and ended up with the wife sitting in a corner smiling well that's impossible you must you know she can't get away with murder so then I have to come on and say well she married again but this time she forgot to turn on the deep freeze
2: <laughs>
1: and that satisfies everyone you see does this attitude of the censor make you boil with anger or merely shake your head in resignation oh well it's It's established, so what can you do about
0: it? Now, as usual, my DVD set stops short of the end of the outro. This time it stops short of the commercial break. So let's fill that in to the break, then I'll do a little housekeeping, then we'll finish up. First, let's rewind Hitch.
1: As you might expect, before Mr. Goodfellow and Mr. Shanks had reached the street, they had walked into the inviting arms of two luscious young ladies, an occurrence that was especially to good fellows liking. But since the ladies were police women, his enjoyment was at best momentary.
0: A television program is constructed in much the same manner as a dinner. The best should be saved until last. You have partaken over the main course. Allow us to serve you the dessert, and then I will return to clear the table. Alfred Hitchcock presents season one including the short feature Alfred Hitchcock Presents, A Look Back, The Big Sleep, Humoresque, Son of Dracula, Twilight Zone, Seasons 2, 3, and 4, The Adventures of Superman, Seasons 3 and 4, Night of the Iguana, The Odd Couple, Season 1, Seinfeld, Season 6, Guys and Dolls, East of Eden, Rebel Without a Cause, I Love Lucy, Season 6, Father Knows Best Season 1, This Happy Breed, Oliver Twist, Les Miserables, Treasure Island, Perry Mason Season 1, Volume 2, Around the World in 80 Days, and Jamaica Inn, including the short feature Shipwrecked in a Studio, as well as The Dark Side of Genius and Spellbound by Beauty, both by Donald Spoto, are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. So this is Hollywood, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, Blackbeard the Pirate, Long John Silver, and clips from episodes from Ozzie and Harriet, Green Acres, and The Adventures of Long John Silver, as well as the clip from the 1966 Hitchcock interview, are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at scherdzmaa at That's S-J- O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at A-A-D-L dot O-R-G and please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode number 20 and So Died Ryabushinska starring Claude Rains. Now back to me doing Hitchcock to close it out. For those of you waiting for desserts, there wasn't quite enough of that, was there? that was deliberate. It's much too rich for you. If you wish another portion, join us next week. Until then, good night.